my uh, my position is you're strong, not weak when you ask for help. And those that get treatment are more resilient and stronger and ready than, than those that aren't uh, and more productive. This podcast sometimes deals with mature content that may not be suitable for a younger audience and could be triggering for some individuals. Discretion is advised. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any uniform services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, or any other organization. Hi, everyone. We're your hosts, Alyssa and Gary. Welcome to the Homeland Hero Salute, a podcast sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. Brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation and produced by Dairy Cam. Learn more about us and our mission by following the Homeland Hero Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hey, welcome back, Don. How are you? I am well. Thank you very much. How are you? Doing good. We also have Gary on, my wonderful co-host. Hello, Gary. Hello. How are you? Doing well. How are you, Don? I'm doing very well. Thank you. So we're going to talk about today for the third episode of your podcast, um, Homecoming and Life Sense Service. And I know you do a lot um, with different organizations and you're very active in the veteran community. Um, and I'm really excited to hear hear more about your story and, and challenges you've faced. And the conversations we had for your part one, part two episodes were really exciting. So, um, let's jump into it. So, um, it's, it's been a little while since we talked, um, and I probably should have listened to that last episode, but I did not. (laughs) Um, so can you give the audience a refresh on, um, your experience in the military and what, what, uh, branch you served in and all that good stuff? Sure. So I joined the Army in 1981 as a private, um, and I served in the 4th Infantry Division and then the 82nd Airborne Division. Went from private to sergeant, and then I transitioned uh, over to um, <clears throat> transition to college. Uh, the military paid for my education, and in 1988, I got commissioned as a second lieutenant. Um, and... Um, from there, I went up through the ranks. I commanded at every single level. It was quite an honor. Um, and I retired in October of 2017 and returned back to the state of New Hampshire, where I was born and raised and had been a resident of for uh, my entire life. Uh, actually, uh, in the military, it was my home of record, my residence. Um, and so it was a uh, easy choice, right? All my family's here and everything I love is here. And so we came back to New Hampshire and my wife and I, uh, as you covered in the previous um, segments, uh, you know, we had got involved in helping our service members on active duty with post-traumatic stress and TBI and pain management issues and sleep disorder issues and um, uh, toxicity issues from all the medications that we took and the vaccinations that we were given. Uh, And um, 
trying to help with their mental injuries and their physical injuries and their spiritual health and that triad I find to be very, very important. Inside an environment in the military, which have had a lot of programs and the chain of command would talk about supporting it, but the approach was one that still stigmatized and prevented, and to this day still does prevent service members and their family members from coming forward to get the help that they need to build the resiliency and the readiness in order to have the coping mechanisms to deal with the uh, mental injuries they experience from uh, head injuries and uh, post-traumatic stress. And for a combat veteran, post-traumatic stress is just your brain's way of allowing you to um, survive more than one day in combat. and the more you deploy and the more you're exposed to that environment, the more your brain sets into motion these reactions that don't change when you come home. And when you're not <clears throat> taught coping mechanisms, you don't understand it and you feel that there's something wrong. And when you exist in an, in, in an environment and provide you with that help, then you seek alternative ways uh, to medicate yourself. And those can be very unproductive for your family life and for your home or for your professional life. And so we've seen it, we've seen it play out and we know that we are having record, um, record suicides, suicide ideation and uh, behavioral issues in the military itself. Um, And uh, our program and special operations command Africa found it was directly related to not getting the treatment that you need. And this treatment is, not difficult. It's It can be done without cutting into the mission. It doesn't take away anybody's warrior spirit. As a matter of fact, my, uh, my position is you're strong, not weak when you ask for help. And those that get treatment are more resilient and stronger and ready than, than those that aren't uh, and more productive. So we took that on in, as we transitioned in the civilian life and Sharon and I sit on six boards across the country uh, uh, for post-traumatic stress for TBI. We're an advocate. I use my own experiences uh, with post-traumatic stress, TBI, pain management, and sleep disorder and toxicity as examples. Uh, And I use myself because this is a top-down approach for people. If the leadership isn't doing it and isn't taking it seriously and isn't putting skin in the game, then the service members are not going to either. And while transitioning service members who aren't getting taken care of on active duty into a veteran system that isn't the most effective. And that's why we have the suicide rates that we have and the the problems within the uh, veteran community and with their families that we're experiencing. And it's, it's, to me, it's an easy thing to deal with. We just have to get people to recognize that and to uh, put the, um, you know, the, the effort in. And we have many, many organizations, nonprofits that have uh, found a niche uh, to help our service members because they're not getting the help through the VA. Uh, and and they, they need to do that. And so we've chose to uh, support them uh, and to <clears throat> uh, volunteer to sit on their boards uh, and uh, help veterans and their families. Uh, you know, we are now up to 44 a day. 
because of this economic crisis and COVID and the social isolation. I was reading the report uh, and that is unacceptable. Absolutely. I agree. Well, can you share what boards um, you sit on that help veterans so we can let our audience know of uh, different resources they can research? Yes, I can. Uh, so I sit, uh, I am an advisor for Veterans Count here in the state and Easter Seals here in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, swim with the mission. Uh, Phil and, uh, and Julie Taub, who you've talked to, I'm, I'm an ambassador for their program, uh, and I'm honored to be able to do that. I advise uh, Liberty House, which is a nonprofit veterans home here in the state of New Hampshire that does not take federal aid, because when you take federal aid, you have to, your, your, uh, the money that you get from them limits you in your ability to effectively help our veterans. Oh, wow. uh, their model is this you have to be clean to go to the Liberty house and the Liberty house is a, is a, is a house that they live. They, they get uh, uh, help with job placement and training, but you have to stay clean. You can't drink, you can't, uh, you can't use drugs and you get, uh, you get drug tested. And unfortunately, if you don't live up to that uh, contract, uh, then you're, you're removed from the program, right? Uh, and um, you take federal dollars and they can't do that. And that's one of the things that the uh, federal government money is, uh, you know, an issue when you start taking federal money. And remember, fundraising, particularly during COVID, has taken a real, you know, it's taken a, a back seat. They can't fundraise. Uh, so uh, I sit on... It's the Semper Fi Foundation. Uh, my wife and I do Mind Your Brain um, out in uh, Pennsylvania, out in Philadelphia, uh, part of the University of Pennsylvania, who has a close relationship and a very effective model of uh, working with the Veterans uh, Administration there in Philadelphia. You go there, you got the main road, you got the University of Pennsylvania Medical Center. You have a bridge, and that bridge is a all-weather bridge. It's covered bridge. You know, it's a uh, indoor thing, and it goes over to the Veterans Administration and back. And so, any any gaps in services, there's an agreement there that you know the University of Pennsylvania Medical Center will help, and vice versa. And a, a lot of the doctors and nurses, medical assistants, pro, uh, professionals work on both sides, and uh, that's that's a pretty effective model. Uh, and I'm proud to um, <clears throat> That's awesome. uh, to sit on that board uh, as well. Uh, and so those are those are some of the boards that we sit on. And um, uh, we don't sit on a board unless um, over 90 percent of the dollar that's raised goes to help the veteran. Uh, and um, <clears throat> uh, that's one of my criteria because. And I won't take a dime. Even if it's a paid position they're asking me to fill, I won't take any money for that. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's right. Uh, I could use the money, of course, like anybody else, but um, uh, so I don't want to give the impression that I'm independently wealthy because I am not. I have to have a job to supplement my retirement income, and I do. I'm a full-time associate professor at New, at New England College, 
but nonetheless, um, <clears throat> and I also advocate for veterans that uh, get in trouble. Um, that's been keeping Sharon and I busy. They find themselves in a, in a, in a difficult situation. You know, uh, I got a call from a veteran who ended up getting arrested uh, here in uh, Hampton, and they called me up and asked me if I'd go pick them up. Right. <laughs> I had just taken a shower. I was sitting on the couch in my jammies, uh, <laughs> is what I call them. And and uh, I was uh, doing some reading and the phone rang. And of course, my wife and I went and picked him up and, and brought him home. And uh, we we I'm not a professional counselor. I'm not a medical professional. I'm a veteran who shares the same experiences. Mm -hmm. So I offer that. Uh, and I get a lot of phone calls and I go out for a lot of coffee uh, and, you know, and things like that. That's what uh, Sharon and I do. We, she is really helpful with the family side of things uh, and her experiences. Uh, so this is what we do. We just make ourselves we make ourselves available. Uh, one of the things I run into a lot of veterans, my wife and I volunteer to deliver meals on wheels in Manchester. Uh, and as a result of that, I run into a lot of veterans who are delivering meals to. Uh, and, um, and so there's an opportunity there, um, to have a positive impact, uh, on a veteran. And I get all my medical care from the Manchester VA. Um, I'm hundred percent disabled and to stay connected with veterans and to understand the, the, the quality of care that they're getting, uh, that runs the spectrum from, you know, not good to excellent. Um, I have to, I have to share, uh, in, in that experience uh, and, and I do. So I guess that's about it. What qualifies someone? Um, I know several veterans, I think even Gary has talked about this. Um, when you leave the military, you have to go through, um, testing so, or some kind of testing and correct me if I'm wrong or don't have the right terms, but, um, how does the military qualify you for being X percent disabled? And what talking about mean? how they how they get their how they come about uh, calculating your rating for your disability? Yeah, oh, yeah. The, the calculation of the rating is the strangest math you've ever seen in your entire life. <laughs> uh, that it is. I've had it explained to me by a number of people, and I'm not a dummy by. You know, I don't consider myself a dummy, but at the same time, it's a mystery to me. Uh, and and, you know, uh, there is a certain amount of subjectivity, too, that falls into that with the doctors and the specialists and and then the person that is evaluating it. Um, and so you could have somebody with identical things. Right. Mm -hmm. And he gets 80 percent and the other guy gets 100 percent because they're being evaluated by two different people. Right. Sure. Uh, it just, it just depends. I don't like that part of the system either. That's why I always tell veterans to appeal, but that process is so long. Right. Um, and you know, these, these wait times and these, you know, things are just unbelievable. So what happens is you get ready to get out of the army, uh, whether it is first, whether you served, uh, you know, one hitch, two, three, four, or you're getting ready to retire after 30 years, right? Um, the process is the same. You have to get a physical. And then that physical by DOD doctors, um, they look at you and they 
you know, write down, okay, this guy's got this service connected uh, injury, this, 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 and this, this one was in combat. This one wasn't in combat. These, you know, you know, all training things or combat things or a combination of the two. They write all those things down, boom, 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 boom. And they put it on a disc for you. And, and um, you take that disc over to uh, your veteran service officer, your VSO that you sit down with, you give them that disc and they schedule you for your appointments and you go through the same process that you just went through with a DOD doctor with a veteran administration approved doctor, because heaven forbid, if at the federal government level, both the doctors and the VA and DOD were, you know, uh, regarded at, at, as the same level of competence, right? But no, we're going to waste even more money by going through the whole process. I did this in Germany in the whole month of July. I was traveling all around Germany wow. to visit a VA doctor whose diagnosis of me and all my things was the exact same as the DOD doctor but I had to go get blessed off. Now, this is a contract doctor that gets flown over there. They stay in a hotel. They work out of a doctor's office in, in Germany that has a contract and gets money from the federal government to, to allow their office and their services to be used by the contract VA doctor. And boom, they, um, they write it all down. And then the day that your retirement goes into effect, or the day that your end of service goes into effect is the day that that disc with the, uh, after the VA uh, doctors have looked at it, goes into the system. And then it takes about six to eight months before they tell you what your rating is. Mm -hmm. uh, and so. And do they calculate mental injury and physical injury? Yeah. Yeah. There's a mental injury, post-traumatic stress, there's traumatic brain injury. There's a severity level. Okay. I mean, all my, all my TBI stuff was, was done by neurologists, right? I had an MRI. What uh, does TBI stand for? Traumatic brain injury. Okay. And, you know, you have, you know, every, everything from, you know, mild to, you know, severe, right. Um, mm -hmm. And you're diagnosed with that. And in each each injury that you have, whether it's physical or mental, has a percentage that goes with it, right? Okay. So, say you got, um, you know, say you have hearing impairment, uh, say you have tinnitus, and they give you ten percent, right? Well, uh, the next thing you have is. Um, uh, say there's you have some skin problems, right? Okay, well, and that's worth 10%, but that's now not 20%. That's some fraction thereof of 10% plus 10% with their funny math, right? Sure. So you don't get 10, 10, 10, right? Uh, just like if you have an injury, like sleep disorder that requires you to have a sleep apnea machine is 50%, boom. Right. Wow. Well, both my hips have been replaced due to bomb blast. So each one of those hips is 30, but that's not 60% plus 50, right? At 110%. Hmm. Because you can have over 100% get more money um, at the end of the day. But bottom line is um, 
it's some fraction thereof that's factored in that doesn't make any sense to me, right? It's just what it is, right? Um, and, you know, I've had discs replaced due to a helicopter crash. I've had both my hips replaced due to bomb injury. I have, uh, you know, thyroid, um, it, you know, issue. I have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, mm-hmm. uh, traumatic brain injury. That Those have a percentage. Um, and, uh, you know, it goes, you know, and they factor all these things in. And then they say, okay, here you go. Uh, here is your rating uh, six to eight months later. Uh, and, you know, I submitted my um, claim to the VA for service connection to determine my my disability rating um, on 1 September. And it sat in a queue because they couldn't do anything with it until 2 October when I retired which makes absolutely no sense to me. I get to work on it, baby, you know, move yeah. out, <laughs> you know, move out, draw fire. It's coming. Right. Um, and I believe there should be a 45 day limit. Everybody should find out their rating within 45 days of submission. And then if you have to appeal it 60 days, not one year. And in some cases, 18 months and two years before they get their appeal adjudicated. It's unbelievable, right? Because the process is automatically driven to appeal because everybody that appeals gets a higher rating once their appeal is, it's like a game, right? And this isn't a game. So get it right the first time and then we're not wasting anybody's time and we're moving forward, right? No, that's not how the process works. There's a huge bureaucratic issue with the VA. I'd love to get in there, roll my sleeves up at, you know, in Washington, D.C. and get to work at, um, you know, at, at, at taking this down. But I don't have much, much hope for change. Right. Uh, the president did a great job in helping veterans with executive orders and doing this. But all his stuff went inside a very dysfunctional system. I give Secretary Wilkie a C minus, maybe a D for his performance. And I don't have much hope for Obama's, or excuse me, <laughs> uh, Biden's uh, pick either, who um, who has no experience uh, with the VA, is not a veteran, and is a, uh, you know, accomplished bureaucrat. Um, and I'm not being mean, I'm just being realistic. It's no, going to continue that. to be substandard care. Yeah. We don't have to get too much into politics right now, but (laughs) we're recording in January of 2021 just to give everyone on the on the back end when they do listen to this episode um, kind of a insight into into how our thought process today might be. Um, Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. I think it's important in kind of the reason that I asked um, for you to explain that and in why it's important to show that they explain, they incorporate the mental and the, the physical injuries into that rating is because I think in our society, there's a lot of stigma around people that have uh, mental 
injuries or um, mental disabilities of, of any, any type. Um, I, one of my best friends is my age, 27. Um, she just survived a very rare brain cancer, um, a type of brain cancer that will most likely come back. She's never considered in remission. Um, and she's on disability, but if you look at her and, and I know other people that are this way as well, they're on disability, they have issues. Um, you look at them and you're like, they're not disabled. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we really have to take away. And, and I think a lot of our veterans are like that and that's why they suffer. And that's why the, the homeless population is, has so many veterans. That's why there's so many veterans that turn to, um, turn into addicts. Um, they turn to that to, to help themselves and self-medicate. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a big thing. And I know Don, that's something that's near and dear to your heart to kind of take away that stigma. Can you, you talk some more about that and your experiences with helping veterans? Sure. I mean, you know, um, the stigma is alive and well, and it's very, very damaging. Uh, and it, it prevents people who, uh, a high functioning people from being uh, the best version of themselves at home and at work. And it, it gets, it gets in their it gets in their way of, of being the most productive person that they can possibly be. Um, the human brain is affected by everything that uh, it encounters. Uh, and there are, you know, it's positive and it's negative. And depending on the trauma, uh, it, uh, and, and the extent of the trauma, the duration of the trauma, uh, the repeated, uh, <clears throat> experiences in an environment that, uh, you know, you would call abnormal, right? There's nothing normal about a combat environment, right? But I can tell you right now that a lot of veterans I talk to, including myself, I mean, that's why I have 10 deployments in Afghanistan. Uh, I felt more comfortable in a combat zone than I did at home, right? And that's a I sentiment that, that I've heard multiple times from veterans I've interviewed. I've, I've, you know, honestly felt I was a burden to my family that I loved very much and honestly didn't want to be away from. But, uh, you know, you're <clears throat> you feel that way. Right. And when you don't have access to, you know, anybody telling you differently than, you know, you're you're not going to be optimal and, and these things are going to affect you negatively. And so getting people comfortable with asking for help, but most importantly, when they ask for help, they do it inside a, an approach inside a process that's accepting of that. Um, we don't need any more research on post-traumatic stress and TBI and the negative effects that has on the brain and, and, and how it affects people's behavior. These mental injuries don't, don't, don't equate to violent behavior. It, it, it equates to unproductive behavior by the individual, mostly directed at themselves, right? Mm -hmm. But the people around them are going to be negatively impacted by it as well. And if we can just be better at the process, be better at the approach and, and understand it. Um, you know, I have a medical service dog, by the way, it's, uh, you know, Victor just got guardian angels, medical service dog of the year award. So oh, congratulations. Uh, he's a celebrity. Um, 
<laughs> I see him in the back corner over there. Yes, yeah, he's in the back corner over there. Um, you know, relaxing. Uh, but yeah, he he is. Um, you know, I have him because. Uh, you know, I qualify to have them, but I have them more importantly to encourage other veterans to get a service dog. Now, that's not as easy as it sounds because it's a visible sign of, oh, something's wrong with him. I mean, you know, I ran for Senate uh, and my own party, the Republican Party, used the fact that I have a dog against me. Oh, he can't be a good, good senator. Uh, you know, he can't run for Senate. He's got a dog, something wrong with him, you know? Um, uh, you know, there were folks that, that had access to the president and told the president that I was weak, broke and needed a dog. So I'm not, not a candidate that he should support. Right. Wow. Uh, it wasn't long, wasn't long before that, that I was leading 2000 service members in 28 different countries in Africa, uh, following the president's policies against violent extremist organizations to protect Americans. Right. Um, and I could go back and do that job just like that. But, you know, he, you know, Victor was a gimmick to get votes. Um, I, I heard, I heard it all right from people who are supposed to be intelligent. People are supposed to be from veterans. Um, you know, uh, you know, it just it, it just boggled my mind, but it didn't stop me. And I brought Victor with me every place I went. And I continued my veteran work while I was a Senate candidate. I didn't let that deter me at all. Um, and that's the kind of <clears throat> of um, example that I want to set for our veterans. You know, go, go, you know, get the help that you need. Your families and you will be better off for it. And I've just heard so many stories from our veterans over the years. Uh, you know, World War II veterans, Korean, Vietnam, uh, you know, and and, and forward uh, about, oh, yeah, I, my dad, my uncle, my grandfather, uh, my aunt, what, what have you, you know, suffered from this terribly. Uh, and uh, it was because. Uh, we made them feel that there was something wrong with them. Uh, and there's, there's nothing wrong with them. Are some injuries debilitating to the point that it prevents them from doing things? Yes, they are. But the vast majority are not. And we have to understand that. Mm-hmm. Now, Don, when, what would you say would be what was your first real deployment that you that uh, that you really counted in your military career. I mean, we we kind of in the military are at a moment's notice or all over the world. But what would you say was the first time you really felt like you deployed? Um. So let's see. Um, you know, I think that um, for me, uh, it was the. Um, it was, you know, 9-11, the first deployment going into, um, you know, Afghanistan uh, on a combat mission, uh, literally, um, you know, just out there uh, with absolutely 
I mean, nothing thrown in the middle of a country and told to make friends with people you don't know. And, uh, uh, a lot of them looked exactly like the enemy and trying to get a mission done. And, you know, for God's sakes, make sure Ahmed Karzai doesn't get killed in the process. Right. Um, And, uh, and then from there, all the deployments I went on were real life deployments. I mean, I mean, I, as a, as an enlisted guy, I, 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 I was involved in the invasion of Grenada. Right. And I did the desert, um, you know, uh, storm and, uh, you know, all those things. Um, and I deployed a lot on contingencies and, and deployed a lot on training missions with, uh, special forces, but the real, the real deployment was those 10 deployments that I did to Afghanistan because I lost men and women on every single deployment uh, and uh, and had people injured across the continuum from minor to severe. Uh, and so, I mean, that, you know, that those were the real deployments. Uh, and, you know, I ended up getting wounded twice myself. And, uh, you know, when you when you start doing the. Uh, memorial ceremonies and you know when you come home and you do the gold star dinners and you meet the families uh, that's when you know i mean it really it really impacts you right on the uh, consequences of your decisions and actions now when you think about uh, coming home from that first deployment that you went on Mm -hmm. uh, what were some of the big challenges that you ran into what was it like when you when you hit that tarmat and you know got off the plane for the first time you know, um, there was such a, I mean, there was such a big deal made about that first deployment and our return from that first deployment, um, that, um, uh, and I lost three service members on that deployment. Uh, and, and so for me, it was the experience of looking uh, you know, at those family members in the face, talking to them. And of the three, two of them, uh, one of them was not very happy uh, and blamed us. And that's a situation that, um, uh, you know, it, it's um, there. They have a right to those feelings. Uh, and it wasn't the first time I experienced that. They they want to hold somebody accountable for the loss of their their loved one. Uh, and in some cases, people are very gracious and, and understanding. Uh, and uh, and in some cases, the minority of cases, I would say there there are family members that are not happy uh, and uh, don't want to talk to you ever again. Uh, and I get that too. And, and that's, uh, and that's their prerogative and I respect that. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I didn't let myself off the hook, <laughs> you know, uh, every single one of those casualties. Um, I, you know, I mean, I told them to go do it. And so, you know, uh, that responsibility falls on me and survivor's guilt is huge and real. Uh, and the more you experience it, the more cumulative it is, uh, the more it negatively affects you. And, um, 
you know, could I have done this? Could I have done that? You know, uh, could I have got them this resource? I mean, you know, there's just a number of things that you continuously go through your mind. Uh, and I, you know, I have incorporated those 72 service members that I lost over 10 deployments to include three in Africa. Um, you know, they're my why, uh, of course, my why is my family. This is why I do things that I do. I want to make them proud. I want to be successful. I want, you know, get up every morning and, and be the best version of myself for them. But, you know, my real why is not letting them down, uh, earning their sacrifice uh, and the sacrifice of their families every single day. Uh, and so I've taken, um, you know, their loss, their, their sacrifice, um, and, um, I've turned it into something that motivates me to be, uh, to live my life and uh, with the, the highest of character and integrity and, and, and to try and help others, uh, the best I can in order to honor the ultimate sacrifice that they made. It's, it's interesting to me to, um, to hear your perspective on this, me being enlisted, uh, coming home and uh, and hearing about you being in a command position and coming home and and the different things that you had to deal with that I not so much had to deal with I uh, I didn't uh, necessarily have uh, you know a vast amount of troops that you know were underneath me uh, so that's really interesting how about uh, tell us a little bit about your family and um, maybe some of the uh, did. Did you feel different when you came home? Did they consider you to have been different or changed? You know, my wife talks about this a lot when she talks with family members and such. And, and, you know, I think she didn't really notice the changes in me profoundly until after the fourth or fifth rotation. And, and then that's when she did. And that's when, uh, you know, my son's, uh, were old enough then, I think, to be able to understand, you know, their dad and, you know, the difference, the differences in him every time he comes back. Right. Uh, and I think the most, I think the thing that affected them the most was I was gone for all of their important things just about. Right. And so that took a toll on them and their relationship and in their little you know, their minds, uh, you know, well, dad, dad loves work and this, that, and the other thing more than he loves me. Right. Uh, and, um, I know, I know that had a profound effect on, on, on each of my sons differently. Surprising. I have three sons and the middle one is he's his, his opinion is, Hey, dad had a job to do and he went out and did it. I mean, my oldest son and my youngest son are the ones that have the issues. Right. And, and they're not just, they're not made up issues. They're valid issues. Um, and what we don't understand is the impact that, that, you know, 20 years of combat has had on our families because uh, they're, they'll, they have post-traumatic stress as well. Uh, and they get it from you, uh, from the part, person that comes home uh, and they get it from, from, you know, the separation and, and, you know, all these things. And, um, 
the other shoe hasn't dropped on the, you know, we're having suicides inside families. Uh, and, you know, the, the question is why, and I think I know the answer to that, but uh, no one's going to take my word for it. There's got to be a, you know, a multi-million dollar study that's done <clears throat> before we recognize that, you know what, when families are separated from each other and one person is out doing very dangerous things and they might not come home and the family is exposed to all of this and they see the ceremonies and they see that their friend's dad uh, is gone uh, and or their their friend's dad has lost both their legs or one leg or arm or is seriously injured. Now, this has a profound effect on them. Um, and uh, it does affect, uh, you know, it does affect your relationship. And um, uh, when it's something that you don't talk about, when it's something that the military doesn't do a very good job at, it's why we have such high divorce rates uh, in the military. Uh, and they are high. <laughs> And it's unfortunate because I think it could all be avoided. And I know the 26 month program that we ran in South Africa demonstrated uh, all the quantitative things that needed to be demonstrated, um, you know, uh, uh, better, better effect on the family, better work environment, uh, less inappropriate behavior in the workplace, uh, um, a significant drop in drug and alcohol incidents. Uh, you know, we saw it. Uh, and, um, uh, but, uh, it wasn't continued. And the commander that came in after me came in with instructions to terminate the program. Um, so, um, that's, I'm, I'm definitely, a good I'm definitely a member of that club. I was, I got a divorce while I was, in the middle of a deployment and uh, that stuff uh, resonates with me. And I, and I think that's some of the most important. And I, I tell you to God honest truth. I, I didn't think it was that important when I was in mm -hmm. because of my mindset and what the military, how the military um, promotes thinking uh, and the way that they promote thinking. Uh, it, it doesn't lead you to believe that uh, these are the things that you need. And when right. you get out and you and you see it from the outside looking in, you know, you also are growing a little older and a little wiser. You see how important these things are. Yes. Yeah. Um, the, you know, I think that's it's it's really something else. When I was going through my treatment as a general officer, um, you know, uh, my wife drew the line with me on 20 uh, in 2013. August of 2013, she said, hey, listen, it's it's come to a head here. You know, uh, you, you really have to go, you know, talk to somebody, get some help. Well, let me tell you, you know, I was just newly promoted general and it was like, OK, uh, uh, you're right. I do. And um, so she went with me and we went and we, we met a nurse by the name of Sarah McNary and launched to a regional medical center. And she. She put me through all my diagnoses and, you know, got everything uh, logged out, you know, written down in my medical records and properly categorized and so on and so forth. I did this for nearly two years, uh, 20 months. Right. Um, and I was a much better version of myself at the other, the other end of this whole thing. And then when I took command of my division level command, um, 
I notice, you know, I notice problems. And I'm like, it's got to be something else here. I'm commanding some of the most elite soldiers in the, you know, in the world. And we got all these disciplinary issues and we have all these problems with families and we got to, we need to, this isn't normal behavior. And so I thought, you know what, it's going to be directly related to not getting the proper care for things. Right. And I talked to my senior enlisted advisor, Navy SEAL by name of Master Chief uh, uh, Rich Plugisi, and I got to tell you, uh, he agreed, and he went for treatment. And the both of us led the way, talking to our service members and explaining it to them. So, you know, I went under the radar, and then I realized I got a higher responsibility here to the men and women in my command and to the organization and to their families. And I just can't sit here and 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 get treatment, not figure out a way to get them treatment and not see how this treatment over time improves our organization. And so we did that. We saw it and it was it was top down. It was me and him. Well, the New York Times picked it up, wrote an article on it. Uh, and I got a phone call, uh, you know, from my uh, senior general officer saying, hey, this isn't going to bode well for you. You need to stop this, right? And I said, "Well, I'm not doing it for myself. I'm doing it for the organization, the people in it. It's necessary, and I'm going to keep doing it." Uh, and uh, that's how I left it. Uh, and they didn't like it, but they weren't going to tell me not to do it because it wouldn't pass the Washington Post, New York Times test. Um, and uh, we did it, and it, it, it changed people's lives. Uh, and to this day, they you know, they communicate with me and they say how it did. And there are many people that wish that the program was still in place. And Special Operations Command, the four-star command at McDill, just spent a million dollars on a study tell them exactly what we knew. It's a problem. People need help. They need treatment. And they're not going for treatment because they're afraid it's going to negatively affect their job. Well, you know, what I did was I guaranteed it wouldn't. I kept them on their team. They kept their clearances. Um, that, that's that's part of the healing process is staying with the people that you love to be around and do things with. And then collectively, we were getting teams in there, you know, entire teams that were going for, you know, a treatment. And guess guess how much, pro, uh, how it affected our missions. It didn't. It enhanced everything, right? Uh, and we did it remotely too. I, I remember going through talking to my therapist at Launchstool from Niger, one of my most remote bases in Arlet, Niger. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. That's how remote it is. And we all got, you know, we, we came up with these flexible ways of getting people treatment and keeping people in the treatment uh, cycle. Um, and it worked. People responded to it. And those that needed to get operations, we gave them time to get their shoulder fixed, their knee fixed, their hip fixed. Uh, and they recovered. And we made sure that they did the right uh, you know, physical therapy. And boom, they were back at it, right? These are the things that we have to do. Uh, I only pray that they, you know, the military and the armed services keep trending in that direction. Well, we hope, but I don't see it. And, you know, we just had a colonel uh, who, uh, Colonel Ray, uh, 
let's see, Colonel Owen, is that his name? Uh, anyways, he was an 06 in uh, Special Forces, just got arrested, finished his, his first Special Forces Group command time, went to be the chief of staff of the, um, the joint base there. Uh, he's, you know, on the short list to make general. Uh, and just got arrested for a domestic violence incident that ended up being uh, a at gunpoint with the police. Um, and he was holding his family hostage. Uh, and, you know, they resolved it uh, without any incident, but they had an IG report on him that the chain of command all knew about that said, Hey, you know, this guy doesn't treat his people right. There's some issues here and there. And they, so they knew there was a problem with his behavior as a result of an IG complaint, but because he was competitive for general, they said, Oh, well, we're not going to do anything about it. And now this incident happened when if they had an environment, in which he could go for help uh, and he could get help, he would have worked his way through all of that. And he could still be a general, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I commanded, you know, I commanded the largest special operations command in terms of number of countries um, and landmass. Uh, and I did it fine with my PTS diagnosis and my treatment, my TBI diagnosis and my treatment. Uh, a lot of TBI negatively affects your balance. And my point is guys that have balance problems have shooting problems. Guys that have balance problems, uh, you know, are a danger when they're rappelling out of a helicopter, fast roping out of a helicopter onto a building at night, and then having to use a ladder or use a, a board to cross one structure to the other. And if they have balance issues with 100 pounds of equipment on, they become a liability. So let's fix that because we can fix it. We have the balance machines and the eye correction machines. We have all those things that we spend God knows how much money on to develop, but then we don't go ahead and use it. Um, it's insane. And uh, I wish I could tell you today that the approach is any better, but it's not. Um, plenty of programs and certainly the chain of command has covered their butts by talking about it, but the approach is broke. It's still stigmatized and, you know, by their own million dollar studies, their service members are telling them. And, they're still not believing them because a retired four-star general said, well, that's an urban legend. Anybody can go for help and, you know, there's no repercussions. <laughs> yeah. Oh, tell that to General Baldick, the guy that, you know, the guy that, uh, you know, saw, saw the repercussions of it. Uh, and, or tell that to anybody else that, you know, when they see that, they're like, hell no, I got a family I need to take care of. <laughs> Well, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about, um, I know when I, when I got out of the service, there was a, amongst my guys, I served a little over a decade and I decided that uh, I was ready to become a civilian. And there was a pull against me of whether or not I'd be back in a year or not. And the people were taking bets because it was so hard for me to get out. Uh, you know, to this day, there's 
there's just so much in my life that'll never amount to the things that I did in the service. And uh, there's a lot that I miss. Uh, do you miss the military and what are, and I imagine you do, what are some of the things that you miss? Oh God, do I, I do miss it. I miss it. I miss the men and the women and the families. I miss them tremendously. Um, I miss the opportunity to be in a position to help people, right? Whether they get in trouble or not. You know, one of the philosophies that I get criticized for was, I think, just like a, just like your child, you know, when, hey, when your kid's the uh, A student, captain of the wrestling team, dating the prom queen, you know, life is easy, right? Uh, it gets tougher, though, when they're not. Right. When they're the exact opposite of that. And it's the same thing with your soldiers. Uh, and they need help and they need you to put your arm around. Them. And we have too much. We have a tendency to give them the Heisman, you know, stiff arm them out there. Uh, and uh, I believe that's when they need the most help. And I also believe in mistakes. And I also believe that you can fail at something. And I also believe in second chances, uh, which is and a zero defect military doesn't you know, it doesn't equate to it. Right. And so the ability to be able to help people uh, through those difficult times, listen, there's some things that soldiers do that um, are criminal in nature, right. And are immoral in nature and are negligently unsafe that they will be held accountable for appropriately. But there's all the rest of the stuff, uh, the 95% of the stuff that they're still being negatively uh, impacted in their careers. And, and I, I uh, wanted to make sure that um, as a general officer, uh, I could watch out for that and I could ensure that, you know, that didn't happen because, you know, I, I know that when I got cut slack for a mistake that I made, um, I learned from it. I moved forward. I didn't do it again. I demonstrated resiliency to bounce back, not feel sorry for myself uh, and continue to move forward. And if it wasn't for, um, you know, somebody doing that for me, I never would have made it past uh, private first class. Uh, and so, uh, you know, um, I miss that opportunity uh, to be able to, uh, you know, work with people, help them help their families. Uh, and, um, uh, I miss that, uh, miss that the most. Hey, listen, if I could figure out a way how to get back in, um, I would, um, I was visiting a recruiter one day and I said, Hey, I want to go in the army. I want to be a, before I introduced myself and who I was, I said, I want to be a dog handler. He said, Oh, okay. Well, have a seat. <laughs> <laughs> I said, all right, <laughs> this is going well so far. Um, you know, until they found out who I was, they said, well, so you can't come back in the army. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what advice would you give to, uh, uh, a 17, 18 year old kid going into the military? Well, you know, my advice is, is, uh, you know, um, do it right. You got plenty of time in your life and what the military will, will, it will teach you how to, it, you'll grow up a lot. And there are so many things you can do in the military. So go in the military and, you know, do something that you like to do, something that appeals to you, whether 
it's uh, military police or whether, you know, you want to be an infantryman, great. You want to be yeah. field artilleryman, great. You want to work on helicopters, great. I, I, I think that uh, the military is a great place for a young person to start their life uh, and to, uh, and, you know, and to grow up and learn and get some experience. You know, uh, I was a I was a B minus C student in high school. And uh, but I was an A student in college. Right. And it was because of the military that, you know, that did it. Right. I mean, it, you know, man, I got to get an education. Uh, you know, I don't want to be digging foxholes my whole life. Right. Um, I tell a story to young kids every once in a while, you know, I'm talking, talking to them. Cause I do a lot of mentoring of ROTC cadets and, and uh, you know, high school kids and stuff. And I said, Hey, you know, as a private, you know, your platoon sergeant would say, Hey, dig your foxhole right here. You're intersecting fires, this, that, and the other thing. Boom. So my battle buddy and I are digging the foxhole and we get there and the Lieutenant comes by and goes, what do you put that there for? You need to move it over here. Right. Uh, and then the company commander would come over and tell you to move. And by the, you know, by the time the end of the day came and the battalion commander came around, you had dug three foxholes. <laughs> so I thought to myself, I'm looking at my buddy, Rich Bryant in the foxhole with me. And I looked at him and I go, Rich, it's raining. We got six inches of water inside our foxhole. It's miserable. Um, I look at him and he goes, Rich, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to become an officer because I want to be the guy that tells the person to dig the foxhole, not the person digging the foxhole. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, for me, you know, that was kind of a motivator. Um, but hey, uh, you know, a lot, sometimes it's not, you know, it, it's not for everybody. Um, and, um, but there's something for everybody to do in the military. I, I firmly believe that with all the administrative jobs and all the mechanic jobs and all the logistics jobs and, you know, the combat arms thing, there's just so much you can do that's so applicable, uh, to, um, a civilian job. Uh, and, I think it just sets them up really well. I know, I know it did for me, uh, and I know it did for my brothers who made the military a career as well. We didn't intend to, but that's what ended up happening. Um, and you know, I got middle boy right now is in the is in the New Hampshire National Guard. He's been activated to help with the COVID vaccination thing, so he's on active duty right now doing that here in the state of New Hampshire. No he's got less than two years left, and he's going to get out. But, you know, it's it's helped him. Uh, certainly. Uh, my youngest son is at Purdue University. He, he's on a four year ROTC scholarship, so uh, he'll get commissioned next year. He's a senior or this year and um, graduate and, you know, move on. Uh, he's not going to make it a career. But nonetheless, um, you know, he's what uh, just turned 22 um, and. You know, he'll be finished by 27. Uh, he'll, he'll have all that in his background and, and you know, be able to move forward. And I, you know, I mean, it's good. I think it's it's good. So, you know, and there's nothing wrong with taking that ASVAB test, right? That Army, uh, that Armed Forces battery test that they give you because 
even if you don't want to go in the military, taking that test tells you your strength and weaknesses, not only in general aptitude, but in uh, mechanical engineering and in medical. And, you know, I know they were trying to get my son, Zachary, to go into the medical side of things because his science and technology score was so high. But he wanted to be a field artilleryman, so he's a field artilleryman. Um, (laughs) You know, so... Uh, there's a lot of goodness in taking that test. I encourage all high school kids when the when the um, when the uh, recruiter comes to your school. One, you can you know one you can get out of class, and two, you can go take the ASVAB test, and it you know it gives you a kind of a baseline that no that that really not a lot of tests give you. Certainly, SAT tests are going to give you that kind of baseline. Then um, you can make some decisions um, or start a new hobby. Um, <laughs> I know that uh, my mechanical skills uh, weren't all that high when I took the test. Uh, uh, the, the recruiter told me, "Is you apparently don't know the difference between a hammer and a screwdriver." <laughs> 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 but you know, so that wasn't for me. You know, I wasn't going to go work on cars. You know, uh, or that kind of thing. But you know, I had I had some good advice from my father and a, and a few and my uncle who was a Vietnam vet coming in and when I went into the military, you know, I joined when I was seventeen and I I there's only select things that I paid attention to and really listened to, but what I really wish I could is talk to myself uh, when I was coming home or when I was getting out of the service. I wish I could go back ten years. Mm-hmm. And, or even sooner when I first came home from my first deployment and give myself uh, some advice. Uh, what are some things that you would say to some of the soldiers that have been home or coming home uh, or, you know, getting out of the service right now? Well, first thing I would say is have a plan, right? Um, uh, you got to have a plan. You got to think forward in time. And, and, and I, I know I, I certainly, um, you know, my plan was to go to college and ROTC and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's, it, I never tried to convince anybody to stay in. I just tried to tell them, Hey, uh, you know, have a plan. What is it you want to do? What are you going to do to contribute to your society, to our society, to our community and so on? What are you going to take with you to do that? Right. And, and have a plan. Um, and, uh, research all the things that the military could do for you to, uh, assist you with that plan, um, and make sure that you've, you have, um, uh, researched all your options getting out, right. Uh, and you know, what could be offered, where you could go, uh, another career field you could go into. Um, and, you know, are you single or are you married with children? And what kind of considerations do you need to make uh, in that regard? Um, and, um, you know, when I came up to my decision point in 1984, um, I was still single. Uh, and it was like, okay, uh, you know, what is going to be, what do I want to do? What's going to be best for me? And how can I get to, uh, you know, to my goal? And, um, and I would recommend that to anybody. If my brother, my middle brother was married with a child and he had a different, um, 
you know, I mean, his approach and his decision making was different. I mean, he reenlisted. Uh, we were a year apart in the military. I went in a year before him. He came in a year after and boom, uh, you know, he stayed in, in the enlisted ranks and went all the way up through the top of the enlisted ranks. Um, <clears throat> uh, but his decision point was different than mine. Um, after his first, um, after his first hitch, he made a, met a very lovely lady, uh, when he was in uh, second battalion, uh, 75th Rangers out in, uh, Seattle, Washington and, and, uh, fell in love and got married and they had a child and, you know, his, his, you know, considerations were, you know, different than mine. And, and, you know, you have to, you have to look at what your responsibilities are and, fully understand what the military can do for you, what it couldn't do for you. And, you know, it was interesting for me, my company commander called me down to his office and he said, Hey, Sergeant Baldick, you're getting ready to eat. You're getting ready to uh, come up for reenlistment. I need you to reenlist. He also came down on orders for drill sergeant school. You make, make great drill sergeant. And I said, well, thank you, sir. He goes, so what are your plans? And I told him my plan was, you know, get out and, not to get out, but to transition in ROTC. And he goes, yeah, I heard about that. First sergeant told me, he said, you know, you're not officer material. Um, you're, you're, a, you're an NCO. You'll be a great sergeant major. You need to stay in it. Follow that track, right? I said, wow. I said, well, thank you, sir, very much. I appreciate your advice, right? And uh, I, but I didn't do that. And um, I, uh, retired a general and he retired a Lieutenant Colonel. So, um, don't let anyone tell you what to do either. Right. And don't <laughs> let anyone tell you, you can't do something. Um, and, um, you know, uh, everybody that was leaving my command and everybody that was getting out of the military, uh, I would take them for a walk and we would discuss what their plans were, what they wanted to do. And as we had this discussion, I would interject um, sometimes solicited and sometimes unsolicited advice. Sounds like a very reminds me of my father solicited and unsolicited. You can tell you're a dad. <laughs> Which works, works well you when you're in a leadership position. Um, Don, it's been incredibly enlightening to listen to your story and hear your perspectives. And I think, um, you know, I got some different podcast ideas up my sleeve and that Gary and I know we want to have some different episodes and I think we'll have to have you on for a couple more. Um, just to get your insight because it's incredibly valuable, the life and experience that you've had and the career that you've led um, really puts a great perspective um, into this podcast. And I've been, I'm very thankful to have had you on and to listen to your story. Um, I think that's a good place to stop for tonight. And, you know, the, the story doesn't necessarily end right here. I think we'll have you on again. Um, and All right. you're doing a lot of good stuff for the world and for the veteran community and looking forward to continuing to watch your success and, um, you overcome and triumph. Well, thank you very much. And it's an honor. Um, so Alyssa and Gary, thank you so much for this opportunity. And, um, I look, I look forward to, uh, I look forward to another podcast. This will be great. Thank you. Yes.
Awesome. We'll have to have you on a, as, as a um, special guest every now and then. <laughs> I would be honored. Thank you. Thank Excellent. you, Don. All right. Enjoy the rest of your evening and thank you very much and God bless you. You as well. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by the Holman Harris Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, support, volunteer, or donate, please visit homelandheroesfoundation.org. Thank you to our production team at Dairy Cam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. And thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Harris Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.